Hello, and welcome to The Sacred and Superstitious, where I'll be taking a weekly look at rituals, folklore, and supernatural creatures from around the world. I'm your host, Daphne Fama. Thanks for joining me today. This week, we're back on track with the last episode dedicated to Filipina sorcery. So far, we've covered barong, an insect-based witchcraft which causes illnesses by sending bugs into specific targets, usik, which fills a person's pores and hair follicles with glass or sand, and hilo, a broad term for all types of magical poisonings. Today, I'll be discussing the last three forms of sorcery, gawai, paktol, and sampal. I'm excited, so let's get right into it. Gawai is a form of sorcery that uses dolls to inflict harm on others, similar to how puppets are used in some Western forms of magic. Supposedly, a puppet was also the source of an accusation in the Salem witch trials. The person who performs gawai is known as a manga gawai, and they can be either male or female. Though, researchers have found that it's usually older women who are accused of being practitioners of this harmful art. When one informant was asked why this was the case, he answered, Perhaps because when God punished the angels in heavens, demons fell to the earth. It's these demons who enter into a person's body, and that person becomes a manga gawai. Women have weaker control over themselves, and that's why they're often victims of demons. Just so we know, this interview was done in 1969, so take it with a grain of salt. In my opinion, some of this reputation may come from the fact that the Philippines has an ancient tradition of female shamans, faith healers, and spiritual leaders and the Catholic Church slandered them as much as possible, though I've no doubt that some shamans did curse others. When practicing gawai, a sorcerer can use either a cloth doll or a wax doll. There's been spirited debate as to which form of doll is stronger. Whether the doll is cloth or wax, some things remain the same. The sorcerer will need some possession of the intended victim, such as their picture, a lock of hair, nails, or some other personal belonging. But if the sorcerer is powerful enough, then they'll only need the name or the birth date of the intended victim. When using a cloth doll, the sorcerer performs a ritual at midday or during the early afternoon between 1 and 2 o'clock. This is the time when most people are taking their siesta or midday nap. She takes the doll and places it on top of her altar. She kneels at the altar and begins reciting certain invocations, as well as the name of the intended victim to the doll. In doing so, she catches the intended victim's double maybe their spirit, while he's asleep. The double is then placed inside the doll. Then, the sorcerer takes her ritual needle, closes her eyes, and forcefully sticks the needle into the doll, at the same time saying the name of the victim. The part of the doll that she stabs corresponds to the part of the body in which the victim will feel pain. So, if she stabs him in the stomach, he'll get stomach aches, or if he stabs him in the head, headaches, etc. The sorcerer might also open the doll's chest, and inside of it she'll place an animal's heart, like a cat heart or a chicken heart. A candle is then lit, which is then used to infuse life into the doll, and in doing so, creates a psychic cord between the victim and the sorcerer. Once the life force of the doll and the sorcerer are connected, the sorcerer uses a needle and stabs specific acupuncture points to break the victim's energy system. As the needle is inserted, the victim can feel each penetration of the needle, and it's meant to be excruciating. But if these rituals fail, maybe because the intended victim wasn't asleep and thus his spirit or double wasn't vulnerable, she'll try another technique altogether. She may tie the doll with a piece of string, usually a thread from the waistband worn by devotees when they do the religious penance for their vows in church during Holy Week. She hangs the doll close to a window where the wind blows. 
the Mangukawai can order the wind to carry her willpower to any place she desires. This willpower penetrates into the body of the victim. As soon as she feels that this has been accomplished, she swings the doll back and forth. As the doll swings towards her, she meets it with a needle, at the same time uttering the name of the victim. If the sorcerer really wants her victim to suffer, she'll keep the needle embedded in the doll. But if the sorcerer prefers to use wax dolls, she'll take the wax from the candles burnt at the altar of the church in town. It's very important that no one sees her take the wax, because if they do, then the doll she makes with it will have no power. As soon as she's finished molding the doll into the image of her intended victim, she returns to the church and prays, but doesn't bring the doll with her. After three weeks have passed, she returns on Sunday to the church. Sunday is chosen because this is when the priest performs baptisms after Mass. The sorcerer must befriend one of the sponsors of the baptism, or use her magical influence to make them obey her. She then has the sponsor hold the wax doll underneath the baby, so that when the priest pours holy water over the child's head, the doll also becomes wet. When asked how no one notices the doll, the informant stated that the sorcerer's abilities make the doll invisible, and the reason why she needs a sponsor is because she's forbidden to perform this part of the ritual herself. As soon as the priest has the name of the child being baptized, the infant soul is forced out of his body by the power of the sorcerer and transferred into the soaked wax doll. When the doll is returned to the sorcerer after the baptism, the baby dies. The next evening, she places the soul-imbued doll onto her altar. She then prays and strikes the doll with a ritual needle, at the same time saying the name of the victim. The soul of the dead child leaves the doll and enters into the body of the named victim. The soul of the child then tortures the person's spirit, and that person suffers excruciating pain and even illnesses that linger long after the ritual is done. But the sorcerer can cause more than general pain. She can make a woman pregnant and give birth to a fish or a lizard. One informant stated that his wife was afflicted with gawai and gave birth to several pieces of eggs, which is what inspired him to become a healer. When he eventually became stronger than the person who cursed his wife, he used his own magic to force the sorcerer out of the community. There's a lot of debate as to whether a cloth doll or a wax doll is stronger, but I think surely the wax doll is stronger, right? The cloth doll doesn't require that much, except maybe an animal heart, but with a wax doll, you literally have a child's soul to do your bidding. During the researcher's fieldwork, no one would introduce them to a suspected sorcerer who practices gawai. Their sources came primarily from three people whose parent-in-laws were said to be manga gawai and whose testimony was corroborated by those in the community. But the informants did state that becoming a manga gawai isn't easy. You have to inherit this power, and it's generally transferred from parent to child. And the sorcerer usually dies in a hard way. She struggles on her deathbed, sometimes staying alive for weeks, even as her body starts to decay. She can't die until one of her children, or a close family member, takes on her skills and powers. An exception to this case is if a very close friend wants the power of the sorcerer. In this case, the sorcerer may choose to transfer her abilities to this friend, who then becomes as strong as the sorcerer. But the sorcerer will lose all of her abilities and be like a normal person. But if you've been cursed by someone using Gawai, no medical doctor can heal you. You'll need the services of a folk healer who's more powerful than the one who cursed you. A healer who specializes in curing Gawai stated that the best way to diagnose it is through a three-part test. 
The first test is to check the person's pulse. The pulse at the wrist will seem normal, but the palpitations at the end of the three fingers, the index, middle, and ring fingers, are sharp and rapid. The back of the hand will also be hot, while the palm is cold. If the patient has these symptoms, the healer will place an egg at the center of the back of the patient's right hand. If the patient feels a deep, penetrating pain, then the healer will move on to the final test. The final task is to place an egg at the center of the forehead of the patient. If the patient faints, then the person is definitely afflicted with gawai. To cure the affliction, the healer will write his most powerful prayers on three pieces of paper, which he drenches in his own saliva. He then crushes the paper and saliva together to create a paste, and then spreads this paste over the forehead and temple of the patient. While the paste is on the patient, the patient must speak the truth. The healer then asks him, who cursed you? Is he from here or not? Shout his name. If the patient hesitates, the healer scolds him and threatens him. The voice that comes out of the patient during this ritual is said not to be the patient's, but the sorcerer's. But this, unlike most coerced interrogations, is actually followed up with an investigation. They send a spy to the accused sorcerer's house and then begin to try and cure the afflicted patient. If the sorcerer is in pain during the curing ritual, then they truly were the culprit. Another reputed form of curing gawai is through whipping patients with a rotan cane or a stingray's tail to drive out the spirit possessing the afflicted person. It's interesting that the culprit is almost always presumed to be an older woman. Jose Rizal, one of the Philippines' national heroes, a revolutionary and a scholar, was also fascinated by local folklore. When it came to those who were accused of practicing gawai, he had this to say, Innocent women, who are known in their communities as shrews or prattlers, are often suspected as being manga gawai because their behavior is considered aberrant by urbanized communities. A certain air, a behavior somewhat reserved and mysterious, a certain way of looking, infrequent attendance at religious services, and others are enough to win an unfortunate woman the reputation of a manga gawai. Azal asserted that the supposed symptoms of gawai were all in the afflicted person's mind, stating, we say that it must be a case of suggestion, or auto-suggestion, inasmuch as the face-to-face challenge, or rather the rebellion against the power of the sorcerer, is a potent counter-bewitchment. Well now, considering the illness under this aspect, there is no doubt that the principle on which its treatment is based is not only rational, not only is it in accordance with modern theories on suggestion, but also the only one that can produce results. So essentially, the best cure for Gawai is to believe that you can overcome the sorcerer's will, and that belief allows you to do so. But Manga Gawai also practice another form of magic, Palipadhangin. Like Gawai, Palipadhangin uses a malignant form of magic, mixing the sacred with the profane. The sorcerer uses holy candles and incense, but these holy candles must be blessed by a priest in church during Mass. When the sorcerer decides to harm someone, she'll take three of the candles and wait until the sun sets. Dusk is important because it's considered to be a critical part of the day. Benevolent spirits grow tired, and malevolent spirits grow strong. Nature is also unstable during this time. That's why most evil designs are done during the night. When the sorcerer hears the Angelus bell, a bell that marks sunset, she'll go into her ritual room. There, her altar is already prepared. She'll place incense in a platter at the center of the altar and burn it. Then she prays. It's important that no one sees her, because if they do, the ritual will fail. This is the reason why Manga Gawai tend to live alone, or live in a room separate to their children. 
If she can't hear the Angela spell, then she'll wait until the chickens return to their roost. In the shroud of a new night, she'll take three candles and place them on the altar. These candles represent the three major winds and the directions from which they come, the south, the north, and the southwest. Don't ask me why the east is included, I have no idea. Anyway, these winds are thought to have a strong influence on the community. They also represent the powerful airs that affect a person's well-being. The first is Hunab, evil air that is controlled by the dwellers of the earth, Hininga, benevolent air controlled by gods and the saints, and Serino, evil air controlled by environmental spirits or Incanto. Hininga, which literally translates to breath, is the most powerful of the airs because it's the life-sustaining element of the earth. The other two airs are responsible for misfortune and disease. Symbolically, the candles also represent the three major rites undergone by a person in their lifetime, birth, marriage, and death. These three rites of passage are linked with the three worlds of the supernatural, the underworld, populated by demons and evil spirits, the middle world, inhabited by spirits who are both evil and benevolent, and the upper world, which is the domain of God himself. But because the sorcerer only desires to cause discomfort and suffering, not death, the Sintra candle, which represents the north wind, benevolent air, and the middle world, isn't lit right away. The two on either side of it are lit first, then the sorcerer prays again. After doing this, she'll light the Sintra candle and extinguish the two others, then she'll pray again. Once she's finished praying, she'll stand up, lean over the altar, and blow the flame in the northern direction three times. After each breath, she'll say the victim's name. She'll repeat the cycle seven times. So in total, she'll blow the candle in the northern direction 21 times. Another informant stated that after blowing upon the candle, the sorcerer must recite the victim's name and the names of seven demon kings, whose names must be recited in the correct order. So, she'll say each demon king's name three times. In doing so, it's believed that the wind picks up the power and will of the sorcerer, carrying her intentions to the place where the victim lives. The wind that carries her curse will either be the south wind or the southwest wind, both winds which are considered malevolent. These powerful winds will force the curse into the victim's body through the person's pores into his blood where it will find the part of the body that the sorcerer wants to cause harm. Once the curse has settled into the predetermined spot, the victim will show severe signs of pain. Sometimes they'll have convulsions or trembling fits or a sharp headache or phobia against light. One informant stated that all patients afflicted with this form of curse will hate light because their eyes are so dilated. A healer stated that this curse enters the victim's mind directly, it doesn't have to go through the pores, and begins influencing their thinking fusing them, and possibly causing the afflicted person to lose their mind. The duration of the curse depends on the person who cast it and how strong-willed the intended victim is. If the curse affects your mind, your symptoms might include memory lapses where whole hours or days are lost to you. Sometimes you'll find yourself someplace and you won't know how you got there. You'll dream constantly of suicide. You might hear voices that others don't, like people calling your name or laughing at you. Some who have been afflicted say that voice try to compel them to do evil things, or that their actions and words weren't their own. You also might feel like you're not alone in your own body, that there's someone in there with you. Other times, you'll feel like a passenger in your own body, watching yourself from a distance. You might even feel compelled to hurt yourself. 
A sorcerer who seeks unlimited control over a victim will supplement her curse by mixing the ashes of a dead person with the intended victim's food or drink. This sort of curse is the most terrifying to me. I'd rather have convulsions and trembling fits and never see daylight again than feel like I'm losing my mind or feel like I'm possessed by something. A faith healer called Brother Gideon asked for those who had experienced Palipadhyangin to speak up on their experiences. One woman claimed that she'd been afflicted with this curse and said that she saw creatures that no one else saw who commanded that she kill. She stated that she never obeyed them, which is good. Everyone around her thought she was insane, and eventually her husband took their children and left her. She petitioned for Brother Gideon to help her, though I'm uncertain of whether or not he did. When Brother Gideon goes to cure a person, he blows seven times on the afflicted person's back while reciting the seven names of the Supreme God. But sometimes the curse has nothing to do with a sorcerer or evil winds. Rather, the patient might be suffering from schizophrenia or some other mental illness, in which case there's nothing he can do. The Philippines, like many countries, still struggles with acknowledging mental illness and supporting people to get the help they need. It's sad that sometimes people with these illnesses feel like they have to turn to faith healers because no one else can help them. The next form of sorcery I'll be discussing today is paktol. Paktol is a Sibohana word which means to knock on the head, or it might just mean sorcery, it depends on who you ask. Paktol is sometimes considered a subsection of Gawai in that it sometimes uses dolls, but in this case I'll be talking specifically about the form of paktol which uses skulls. This form of sorcery requires the skull of a person who hasn't been baptized. Some say it's the owner of this skull that goes out to torment his victims. To perform paktol, the sorcerer will conduct a ritual on Friday, either at noon or at 8 in the evening. They'll provide offerings to the spirit or familiar who aids them in their craft. Then they'll take seven leaves from a nettle tree, a persimmon tree, and an evergreen tree. Each of these trees has either a poisonous or irritating quality about it. The evergreen tree, for example, has a poisonous watery sap which can kill fish. The seven leaves from each of these plants will be placed on the right, left, and back sides of the skull. A paper with the name of the victim is placed in front of the skull or inside of it. This paper and the leaves are tied to the skull with a black cloth or a rope made from an aggressive climbing vine. Three wooden wedges are then inserted between the band and the skull. The sorcerer will then take a club or rod made from the trees he took the leaves from and start tapping on these wedges while chanting. You are not a living person. You are among the dead, and I have a command for you. Go to the person written there and kill him. He taps the wedges seven times. If the vine or cloth keeping the leaves attached to the skull breaks, the victim will die instantly. The sorcerer can repeat this ritual once more, and after two weeks, the victim will die while suffering intense headaches. Other symptoms might include dreaming of a dead person you don't recognize, but you know wants to kill you. This person is reputedly the owner of the unbaptized skull. Accidents and death may also follow you, including the death of animals. You may also feel exceptionally weak and think constantly about suicide and death. There are also symptoms which only affect women, such as chafing around your thighs, irregular or painful menstruation, the inability to get pregnant, or only having miscarriages. In order to perform paktul, a sorcerer must have an encanto or a supernatural supporter. An encanto in this case is a dangerous spirit who is able to assume human form and causes illness and death. They're reputed to inhabit remote places like uncultivated fields, mountains, and caves and are associated with a strangling fig tree. To secure an encanto as a sponsor, 
the searcher goes to one of those places, or wherever he believes the encounter resides, and makes a sacrifice or offering. The first offering is elaborate and includes a pig, chickens, eggs, cigars, cigarettes, wine, cooked rice wrapped in palm leaves, cups of chocolate, slices of bread, and glasses of water. Although no encanta will be visible during the sacrifice, the one who offers it can tell when the encanto accepts his gifts. The sorcerer then asks the encanto for its help in his sorcery. Once this relationship has been established, the sorcerer then incurs obligations to repeat this major sacrifice annually. He may also be required to make additional special offerings, depending on the type of sorcery he does. This relationship is thought to be an essential component for the sorcerer's power in all of his undertakings. But before a sorcerer can perform pactol for a paying client, he must carefully evaluate the client and the accuracy of the client's story. If the intended victim is innocent, sorcery will not work against him. His innocence is his shield, and if the client is actually at fault, then the sorcery may boomerang back and strike the client down, and perhaps the sorcerer as well. But this might be a built-in fail-safe for the sorcerer who might want to attribute a failure of the spell on moral factors instead of his own abilities. Or perhaps his ideology is meant to reassure the sorcerer of his position as an agent of righteous vengeance instead of a capricious killer. But beyond the moral component, sorcery may fail because the intended target has an amulet called an agimat, which can fend off sorcery, even if the intended victim is guilty. If the spell works, a sorcerer may be able to undo the spell if his client requests it, or if the victim seeks him out for a cure. In one interview, a sorcerer identified only as A treated a woman with a swollen and painful stomach who had already been to a medical doctor in the city. The doctor was unable to cure the pain because it was caused by supernatural efforts. A stated that the woman was a known troublemaker in her community and had serious disputes there. Someone had come to A and asked him to make the woman sick. The woman eventually came to A herself, asking him to cure her. A stated that he did feel that the woman was guilty of her social transgressions against her neighbors, which was why he had cursed her in the first place. But he still lifted the curse off of her. When asked why he lifted the curse, A stated, Life is very precious. That is always God's command. He then said that a victim of his own practice came to see him for treatment, he would accept the case. When asked about his client who had commissioned the sickness against the woman in the first place, would feel about him lifting the curse, A responded that he felt he had met his obligation to sorcery work. Another sorcerer on the famous Sikihor Island, which is known for its population of witches and healers, is far more capitalistic. He chose not to be identified, but stated that he had customers from all over the world who hired him to place hexes on their enemies. He kept his skull in an old rice bag, and the skull was stuffed full of victims' photographs and names. One of the most popular practitioners of Pactol might be Kuya Edel. Edel's grandmother, Bosha Bulungon, is a famous sorcerer who is First Lady Imelda Marcos' personal confidant and healer. Bosha earned this placement beside Imelda Marcos when she cured Imelda after she'd been cursed by a mermaid who caused Imelda to develop like a reptilian scaly like legions on her legs because the Marcoses had built a bridge that the mermaid didn't care for. Anyway, when the Marcoses fled the Philippines, Bosha returned to the island with her newfound wealth and buried it. And because everyone was terrified of her because she was a very powerful sorcerer, she refused to pay for anything or share her wealth with her family. Eventually, one of her grandsons beat her to death with a wooden club since she was immune to both knives and bullets. But even after her death, they still weren't able to find her money. I personally don't believe that Edel 
is the one that beat her to death, but it's not stated one way or the other. Edel feels that like he inherited his grandmother's power, but unlike his grandmother, he is well-liked and has a reputation for kindness and fairness, despite being a sorcerer. He used to practice barong, a type of witchcraft I discussed in the first episode. Barong uses insects to penetrate a person's body to cause illnesses and potentially even death. But he no longer prefers this type of sorcery, stating that the insects could be unruly. And beyond that, they had their limitations, since insects can't pursue someone once they leave the island. Now he primarily focuses on Paktul, though he's selective on who he chooses to serve. He listens to the account of what took place, weighs the facts, and then only takes the cases where he feels that someone has truly been aggrieved, hurt, or disgraced. There are three offenses that merit the use of Paktul. An insult cast on a family, dishonoring a woman, and murder. Kuya Edel ignores cases involving politicians or petty crimes. On the day he was interviewed, a woman and her mother came to him asking him to perform Paktul on someone. The individual had taken advantage of the daughter and fled the island. After hearing the story, Edel agreed. He accepted the photograph of the intended victim and wrote his name on a piece of paper. The mother then gave Edel an envelope of money. After the mother and daughter left, Edel went to a small Nipa hut behind his house. In the middle of the hut was a small table, on top of which was a human skull, a white candle, a small tin can, a piece of white paper, and a pen. In one corner of the hut was another small altar with a statue of the Santo Nino and various other miniature statues and pictures of saints. He confirmed he was Roman Catholic. In another corner of the room was three cats, and beside them, even more skulls. Kuya Edel knelt before the altar and prayed in whispers. He then took out a small book from which he recited more prayers, but in a mysterious language, which wasn't Tagalog, Basayan, or English. After praying, Kuya Edel lit the candle, which he placed beside the skull. Taking a piece of paper, he wrote the name of the intended victim on it and inserted it into the skull. He then burned the photograph given to him by his client using the candlelight. When the photograph disintegrated into ash, he placed them into a tin can. Edel stated that the moment he finished the ritual, the victim was struck with nausea, vomiting, and a terrible headache. In a few days, Edel said, the victim's stomach will bloat and he will bleed from the inside. No medical doctor will be able to cure it, and his only escape from torment will be death. The doctors will say that this illness or that illness caused the patient to die, but actually the cause will be Pactol. When asked how many people he had performed this curse on, Edel presented his notebook. In it were hundreds of names. But Edel is also an accomplished healer who can undo the work of any other sorcerer. Usually, he just asks the other sorcerer to undo it, and because he's so well respected, the other sorcerer obliges. But they also do it out of fear, because they know that Edel is a more powerful sorcerer. An interesting fact about Edel is that the skull he was using was actually freely given. It was the skull of a former neighbor who died of natural causes. Edel asked the family if he could have the skull for a sorcery, and the family happily agreed. He stated that the family actually felt honored to be asked. I wonder if they really felt honored, or were they just terrified of a sorcerer that could kill them? Anyway, he apparently used to perform his rituals in a hidden cave, but one day he discovered the cave had been found by looters and his extensive skull collection wound up stolen. He then had to ask other neighbors for the skulls of their dead relatives in the nearby cemetery, Again, they were happily given. He then built the Nipa hut at the back of his house to use for performing his crafts in lieu of the looted cave. 
Up to now, he said with visible pride, no one has ever said no to me whenever I ask them for the skull of the relative. Hmm. Edel states that he charges between 150 to 1,050 US dollars or 113 pounds to 800 pounds, depending on what the client can provide. And the very last form of sorcery I'll be describing in this series is Sampal. Sampal is quite rare, but I think it's really unique. The sorcerer will go to the sea to find a bahag bahag, a snake sea cucumber. It's generally found in shallow waters, and it's one of the longest sea cucumbers in the world. Some may be as long as 10 feet in length, and from a distance, it looks like a snake, but upon closer inspection, you see the odd tentacles that extend from its head, which make it look a little Cthulhu-ish, like a little octopus head. The sorcerer will procure one of these sea cucumbers and some trace of the intended victim, like their fingernails, hair, a photograph, or some other possession. They'll then use a dead woman's hair to tie the tail of the sea cucumber, and the sea cucumber will be placed in a basin. Using the leaves of a nettle tree, a persimmon tree, and an evergreen tree with poisonous sap, the exact same trees used in Pactol, the sorcerer will wrap the victim's belongings. The sorcerer will then use a twig of one of these trees to open the sea cucumber's mouth and insert the representation into the sea cucumber. Then the mouth will be tied shut with a dead woman's hair. The sorcerer will then place the sea cucumber in the sea, where he'll tie it to a rock or stick to keep it in place. One of the interesting traits of the snake sea cucumber is that it enlarges when it's filled with water and shrinks when out of water. So during high tide, the victim's stomach will bulge and swell and the victim will suffer intense stomach aches. The stomach might even burst. During low tide, the victim's stomach will recede again, but he'll suffer fevers as his temperature follows the rising sun, growing the worst at noon and returning to normal at night. To hasten the death of the victim, the sorcerer can just bring the sea cucumber to shore and wait for it to die from asphyxiation. To counter Sampal, a healer can rub the shavings from the Kamala tree on the victim's body. Afterwards, these shavings will be divided into two piles, and both are wrapped up in the leaves of the giant taro plant. One pile of shavings will be buried in the ground, and the branches from the nettle tree, the persimmon tree, and the evergreen tree will be burned atop of it. The other pile will be carried to the sea. The one who carries this pile must be careful not to meet anyone along the way, and once they reach the sea, they'll have to keep walking into the water until the water is up to their chin. Once they've reached this spot, they'll then have to bury the wrapped shavings into the sand. Once all these conditions are met, the sorcery will return back to the one who cast it. And that's it. That's it for sorcery in the Philippines. It's been a trip, right? We've talked about malevolent spirits in the form of bugs, shard of glass that embedded themselves in your pores, all types of poisonings, and now doll, skull, and sea cucumber magic. What's your favorite? For me, I think it has to be Barong and Sampal. Barong was the first form of sorcery that I learned about, and I think it's just really weird and really unique. But Sampal, like, who thinks about stuffing a sea cucumber with anything? But the most terrifying to me, undoubtedly, is polypod hanging. Imagine losing your mind and just having no control of yourself, feeling like you're possessed. I just, I can't even imagine. It's just terrible. Anyway, next week, I'll be taking a look at exorcisms in Thailand, so I hope you'll join me then. This is Sacred and Superstitious, and I'm your host, Daphne Fama. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.